Okay, we're on. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Social Innovation Podcast. Today, I am joined by Scott Salandi DeFore, a co-founder of Liquid Star. It's great to have you here, Scott. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. It's uh, Thanksgiving here in the United States and had a, had a nice Thanksgiving dinner before I hopped on to do this podcast. Oh, that's right. It's nighttime. <laughs> so do you, do you guys do like a traditional turkey dinner with like all the trimmings and stuff like that? Yeah, and then we mix a little bit of like uh, foreign flavor into there because my parents aren't, aren't from the U.S. So, you know, we had some like Jamaican beef patties as well, for example, as, as an appetizer. That is so awesome. Are your parents from Jamaica? Kind of all over. So my mom was uh, born in England and grew up in Jamaica. Wow. And then my dad was born in Venezuela and grew up in Trinidad. And then they met in Canada. And then I'm here in the U.S. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay. Can you give us, now you've given us a little bit, but can we have a little bit more of your background for context? That was awesome, by the way. Yeah, no problem. So in terms of background, I consider myself a uh, reformed management consultant. So (laughs) prior to getting into the entrepreneurship realm, I did uh, management consulting for about eight years, uh, four years at a government contractor here in uh, DC called Booz Allen Hamilton, okay. and then another three or four years at a uh, British consulting company called PA Consulting. It. it was at the latter company where I was doing more commercial work that I was just really, really struggling to kind of figure out like, you know, you're doing a PowerPoint deck and you're like, what is the impact really of this deck? And like, if I don't do this deck, nothing is going to change in the world. <laughs> like, it's not the end of the world, no matter how important like other people might feel like it is so that's kind of my background but fortunately at PA I, I was very lucky to do a lot of emerging technology consulting so specifically with utilities helping them figure out how do we use IOT big data wearables um, those types of technologies and then also I got to do that specific type of consulting for the UN um, and helping them forecast how some of these emerging technologies, specifically my areas of focus were IoT, wearables, big data, that type of thing, how some of those technologies um, can actually help to accomplish some of the the SDGs. So that's sort of how I I got into this space and and just a little bit about my background. So I say this a lot, but I wanna give a lot of credit to the eight-year career and after those eight years just deciding that it just wasn't enough and it wasn't having enough impact. It took me 20 years or more to figure that out, by the way, or, or just to give up on the fact that my soul had already been destroyed by working at big companies and that I wasn't having enough impact. <laughs> so I give you a lot of credit. I'm, and people like you are, people that are young but have figured it out and then just leave. Was there pushback? I don't know how to ask this the right way, but was there pushback like from your family when you said, yeah, I'm leaving these great consulting jobs and I'm just going to go start something on my own, which may go bankrupt? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so <laughs> it's a, it's a very very good question. So I definitely think like part of being like an immigrant kid is the the tolerance for risk is a lot lower, especially have a good job making six figures. You know, saying like I'm going from that to making zero on like ideas, hopes, and dreams doesn't necessarily go over well. But in general, like my parents know two things. Like number one, like if I do something, it's like it's super well thought out. But then also, um, if I do all the research and make up my mind to make a decision like that, there's nothing you can do to change, change my mind. There's no, there's no code 
that someone can say. Um, so, you know, I kind of framed it to them actually that this goes back to my consulting experience, I guess, where I was interviewing people that had MBAs from NYU to come in at my position at PA consulting. Right. And when I was thinking about it, I was like, well, why would I, the other thing is that working in emerging technology, I was seeing how quickly things were moving. So things that a year into when I started, you would be like, oh, that would cost like a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollars to have someone implement a uh, machine learning algorithm to help predict faults in um, power lines and, and those types of things. In that period, it went from like that much money down to like 10k right. to get a pilot off the ground. So, in my mind, I was like, there's no way I can just remove and go back to a school setting. You know, I, I need to do this, and 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 really, I think the greatest validation is that I recently saw kind of like an old girlfriend I had during that time and she was like wow you seem like much happier now even though you're not making any money and you're basically broke so it's a little bit of validation that I I made sort of the the right right decision there yeah I think if I had stayed in my previous sort of employment cycle I think I'd look like I was 85 years old Right, and, right. Uh, and I don't right. look eighty-five today, so that makes me happy. And your and your ex-girlfriend is is completely right. When you have it, when you're not selling your soul to the devil, you, you have to be happy by definition. But it also proves something else too, right? Is that money alone is not the sole driver nor the sole measurement for anybody's success. It's so true, and I think part of the reason why people don't kind of take the leap is number one. Obviously, there's the fear of failure, sure. you know, the risk taking. You have to have certain DNA. But number two, as weird as it sounds, you do feel like you're living in some kind of cliche, right? And that, as well, you're just like, am I being corny by doing this? <laughs> no, you're not. Like, do I think I'm living in a, a rom romantic comedy or something like that? So, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, that that was definitely like one of the things where I was like, am I being like grass is greener delusional in terms of wanting to do this but i can honestly say that you know even though like at one point two years ago i had like negative 1500 bucks in my bank account sure and it was like very stressful uh, it's like i am happy (laughs) like every day because it's like i'm attacking a mission where i know that in the worst case scenario i feel as if we're going to impact at least 500 people's lives for for the next 10 years. And I could not say that with as much value, I think, if I was doing the management consulting stuff that that I was doing before. Yeah, it's different being a cog than it is being a driver of of impact. Let's talk about Liquid Star. What what is it? What was the inspiration for it? It sounds like some of it must have come out of some of the stuff you were doing at PA, right? Yeah, definitely. It was more give a little backstory. Basically, after PA, I started another startup that was focused on um, helping to detect bias in the news because I kind of saw the whole Trump thing coming. And, you know, we just couldn't figure out how to make money with that. And that was like a three month one and done kind of startup. Even we, we were invited to the UN AI for Good conference to talk about what we were doing. Then I worked on another startup, which was using augmented reality and machine vision at events to detect bias. And then that took me over to Hong Kong, where I met the other founders of Liquid Star. So I just wanted to add that context. But really, the the main sort of driver for that 
was actually being in Hong Kong and seeing China and then looking at the research and one of the one of the clearest trend indicators when you look at China is that as their electricity consumption increased right. their GDP increased and you can't have one without the other and actually talking to some of my economist friends they they would say that like you know obviously sometimes China might not be the most forthright with some of the numbers that they put out so what we do is we cross-reference the GDP numbers growth numbers etc with what we're seeing in their energy markets pollution that type of thing so that kind of got me thinking that like if you want to help poor people across the world at a minimum they need access to uh, electricity so that was really where the idea um, came came from and it, again it was just total total luck how I we decided to take it to the next step so I, I was back in the US from Hong Kong and a friend had actually asked me to uh, help her put together a nonprofit like proposal mm -hmm. uh, for women in Nigeria and I was helping her and at the end of it I was like hey you know me and my friends in Hong Kong we have this idea in the energy market. Do you know anyone in energy in Nigeria? Because I, I think it would be perfect. And she's like, actually, the people who are helping me with this, they own like a power plant in Lagos, Nigeria. So you can kind of kind of talk to them. That's so awesome. that was really the, the kind of like impetus and how it started. But the main thing to get across is that to me, it's outrageous that it completely solved problem like access to electricity there are a billion people without it it just doesn't in my mind it just didn't compute because it's we don't need any sort of like fancy new technology to solve that problem it's just about money and willpower and it's just such a big problem that enables everything else um that it just it's a no-brainer for something to work on so that was part of it. And then the final stage in terms of tying it back to my consulting is like sometimes for the utilities, we'd be doing financial models and those types of things. And the cost to maintain and operate the traditional overhead wires was outrageously expensive. Really? And so, and yeah. So a lot of people don't know that it costs close to uh, about $170 per meter for overhead wires. And I think it's about five to ten x more to put wires underground, depending on where you are, and that's in the developed world. In Nigeria, it's all so it's about 170, as I said. In Nigeria, it costs 150 dollars per meter, so it's not significantly cheaper. And then when you compare what someone in San Francisco salary versus what someone in Nigeria, it's kind of obvious why you know there's not enough energy places, there. Right, because they're like, I'm not going to build the wires. The other crazy part that we don't deal with here is that about 40 to 60% of all the electricity generated in emerging markets is stolen. So that as well adds complexity to the business model. And the craziest thing that we heard is that people will actually climb up the wires, snap them, risk blowing off their hands to sell the copper in the wires delivering. So there's just all kinds of of uh, challenges that make it uneconomical. Scott, how does how does generated electricity get stolen? Yeah, so it's really because there's so much complexity in the system. So you have generation, transmission, distribution, and metering. So there's a couple areas where 
it's stolen and then there's a couple areas where payments don't happen the way they should so in nigeria for example sometimes the generation company they're supposed to be paid by the transmission company for example and they just don't get paid um and then on the distribution side there are people that climb up and may have these makeshift power wires that are literally you'll see them the most famous examples of this are in india where there's you see like an electricity wire that has hundreds of lines coming out of it and people will literally throw hooks up at that dig into the wire attach it and then plug it in then finally in uh, places like nigeria and this is actually a problem that happens in the u.s that we learned about less so now that weed is legal but basically people will wire around the meter right and so in the u.s when weed was illegal Got and it. people had grow houses that's what they would do but in these countries they they do the same thing just for regular uh, lights and things like that. So it's very, very dangerous, number one, causes a lot of fires, a lot of deaths. Number two, it actually destabilizes the grid because the company, uh, the generation company, transmission, distribution, they don't know the proper load level, those types of things to, to put through their system because they can't base it solely on paying customers. So that it, it adds a lot, the theft adds a lot of complexity and removing people that are illegally tapping in to the, the, the grid is politically not very popular. And I think in South <laughs> Yeah, how do you do that? South you just like, disconnect, disconnect 100 wires and then people don't have electricity and then they die. Either yeah. that or it's like whack-a-mole where you take down one wire and they just wait a few nights and put up another wire, right? Right. Go it's ahead, just, I interrupted you. It's just not, no, 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 it's fine. It's just not a winning strategy. So an example of a country where they did this recently people went pretty got pretty angry because obviously covid times was in uh, south africa where some of the informal settlements had a bunch of these connections and the power companies we just can't afford this and so they took them down and it's just it's been a been a big problem um out there uh as well in terms of just keeping political stability nice so if you had to put the mission of liquid star into words what would you say the overall mission of this company is? It's actually, we're very, very clear. We have 10 years to solve 10% of UN SDG 7, um, which is the fact that 1 billion people don't have access to electricity. So said another way, we want to make sure that in 10 years, Liquid Star will have 100 million people on the platform. That's our goal. Everything we do is like thinking that big and, and at that scale. That's a, that's a lot of people. Can you talk to me a little bit about why some other solutions don't work? Like you hear a lot of yeah. talk about microgrids or maybe installing solar on rooftops and stuff like that. Uh, we haven't really talked about what you're doing is better, but I want to talk about why something like a microgrid grid you think is not appropriate for solving this kind of problem. Sure. So, yeah, <laughs> there's there's three as we call them, competitors of Liquid Star. And, and they're, uh, as you mentioned, mini grids and the traditional grids, small solar home systems and solar home systems, and uh, kerosene and diesel generators, right. kerosene for light as well. Um, so the first group is, again, from consulting um, mini grids and grids. They don't solve the core problem, which is it's not building the infrastructure generating the electricity that's difficult. It's the maintenance and operation of the wires that connect to the houses that is very hard and also the financing for that. So one thing people don't think about as well is that 
in these areas just to put just to get the connection the meter you have to pay 60 bucks 60 us dollars for that right and that's a tremendous amount of money and then the utility can't even charge you like monthly or upfront because no one has the money they have to handle like uh billing every single day so it's it's completely uneconomical for mini grids the other part about it is that you have to have people that are able to fix those grids right and that part is very challenging to do if you think about electricity here in the in the united states for example those are union jobs that take like you know five ten years to train someone up so that they have the skill set to not blow their hands off right so it's it's a challenge on the mini grid side and 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 the, the the numbers don't work then on the small solar home system side what you have is a whole host of problems so the first thing that was very surprising to me is most of the people that are on those systems, mm-hmm. they're actually p- paying three to five times the value of those the, of the retail value of those devices over the three to five year period that they have them. And to us, that's crazy because it, it, it just doesn't add up that the poorest people are paying five x for a device that's worth a hundred bucks. It, it, it doesn't make sense. I understand that part of it. The second thing that happens with the small solar home systems that it's actually very difficult to just sell electricity what ends up happening is that the even though they're charging three to five x uh for the devices it, it's almost a lost leader and every single company has to figure out how to sell products that use electricity on top of that right because e- so what was explained to us is that when electricity first started in the US, they weren't ad- they weren't having success getting people to sign up advertising like the lighting and things like that. Right. It was having appliances that used the electricity that made people's lives easier or better. Right. That's what ended up getting people to sign up and the small solar homes. Washing machines, refrigerators, stuff like that, yeah. Exactly. And that's what they're finding they have to they they have to do. The second thing about their business model that's tough is the sales process. So this is again, probably more of the management consulting view. So from doing research, what we saw is that generally, if you're installing small solar home systems, it takes three to five visits to make your first sale in a community, and then it decreases from there. But the problem is that if you have a community of 100 households, let's say, and each of them have one of these panels, Number one, there's no building code. So each house is different. And how do you train someone to be able to successfully and safely install these things into houses with no codes? Got it. The second part of it, which is also very challenging, is if one of those systems breaks and they're in individual houses, you have to send someone out to fix it immediately because they're 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 paying for it. Right. Right. So if I if two break, I have to send the technician out to a remote area to try and fix it. And that can be expensive. And then finally, what we saw is that the reconciliation of all of these hundreds of devices where people are making transactions that are less than a dollar every day, every day, it's very difficult to do that reconciliation. And so you just lose a lot of operational efficiency trying to, to sort of um, manage that. Uh, so that's kind of why that doesn't work. And then obviously kerosene, is really expensive 
it's really bad. We were surprised. Like, it's just things you don't think about. Kerosene generators kill 50,000 people per year in Nigeria prematurely just from breathing in the smoke from that. It's got to be really even, dirty, right? Yeah. It, I was shocked. It's just something you don't think about that is like another thing these people have to overcome. Yeah, it, that to me was like stunning. Uh, and what we see as well is just, as I mentioned briefly, the cost is is, is really high. So it just doesn't work from, from an environmental perspective or cost perspective. The one thing that kerosene does have that I think is gonna be a challenge for everybody in this space is kerosene they also cook using kerosene and, and it's oh, difficult no. to replace that function right. with with batteries and, and even electricity to a certain extent. Okay, so tell me, what does Liquid Star do? In other words, you, you've identified all these problems, all these expenses and stuff like that. What is the Liquid Star solution? How does technology facilitate it? And then how do you get this deployed? Yeah, so Liquid Star, we call it the Uber for electricity. And so we are really focused on using a service model innovation and so instead of having wires or a bunch of decentralized solar panels on every individual house, we take all of those solar panels that would be on the houses in a community and we actually put them on top of a shipping container basically. So we call those waypoints and they're shipping containers that have between 18 and 30 solar panels on top of them and those actually charge the battery. And then how it works in practical terms is that we have these con uh, containers or waypoints. The individuals in the community come to the container, they pick up a battery that they want, and they take it with them. And those batteries range in size from 10,000 milliamp hours to 100 watt hours to 200 watt hours to 2.4 kilowatt hours. And, and the sizing is intentional. The reason why we have 10,000 milliamp hours is almost as a, as a loss leader but also to really target that kerosene lighting application and also the cell phone charging application. And so the latter was also a thing we don't think about. So in some of these villages, to charge their cell phone, people will walk one to two kilometers and pay 34 cents to 50 cents for one charge of a Nokia feature phone. So we figure, okay, we have that sort of battery taken care of. The 100 watt hour and 200 watt hour, that was selected because that's the battery capacity generally of the small solar home system, but people aren't necessarily gonna be using all of that and they still have to pay for it. So what we're saying is that, okay, if you only want 100 watt hours, you can take that for the day. If you want 200, you can take that. And if you really need that 300 watt hours, you can rent two batteries and get that and it'll be a little bit cheaper than your daily cost to activate your small solar home system. And then finally, we have the 2.4 kilowatt hour battery, and that's really in place to power things like electric mobility, so electric bike, but also power tools to, to create uh, jobs. And and so that though, that's why we selected the, the kind of four battery sizes they did. To answer your question about how does technology play into that, yeah. what we did was most people in these countries don't have smartphones. So we made a text message-based mobile application that allows people without smartphones to rent these batteries. Now, each of the batteries that I mentioned, they're all IoT connected, they have GPS in them, and that's kind of how we track them to reduce theft, those types, those types of things uh, as well. Then 
on the other side, we have the software platform to manage the container itself. Because if you think about scaling this up, that would be very difficult if you had to manage each of these solar charging stations and 168 batteries individually. So we've created a, a platform to help scale the management of all of that. And the last part where it's really important is developing sort of a, a ledger-based technology that manages the identity of the individuals that use the platform, the metering and the transactions, reducing some of that reconciliation cost that I spoke about uh, earlier. So that's kind of how technology is enabled, but really, you know, one of the things that we're very focused on that I learned actually doing the emerging technology consulting is stay laser focused on the problem that you're, you're solving nice. and less so on the, the technology. Because uh, to give you an example, when we were doing the emerging technology consulting for actually linemen, at a, a power company in New York, one of the surveys we did was like, oh, we can give you these Google Glasses that will make your life way easier. You don't have to write, et cetera, et cetera. And us being tech, never been out on the lines. The guys were like, well, if I drop this off the top of the, right. the pole and it breaks, what happens to the data? I'm like, oh, you just have to redo it. And the individual said if this thing doesn't work just one time we will never use it again right. right and so they they were like for us the best solution is a piece of paper and that's kind of like how we think about liquid star and technology it's we only want to use technology that's required so if the people come back to us and they say actually we don't want this text message based stuff we just want to use paper we'll we'll we'll, we'll do that but for now based on our surveys, those types of things, we've, we've kind of seen that that text message-based interaction works really well. The text message adoption in you know, emerging markets is, text message payment, excuse me, adoption in emerging markets is actually higher than it is here in the, the US. So they're, they're in some ways more advanced in terms of using that. So mm -hmm. for now, it, it, it's working. So you mentioned Ledger technology. I want to be clear about this. You're talking yeah. about some sort of distributed ledger technology. Is that right? Yeah. Block yeah so people notice, will understand like blockchain, even though that's not really what it is, yeah. but just so they can understand it, it, the it frame is, of reference. Yeah. Yeah. It is blockchain. I just hate using the B word um, because I think blockchain should be in the background. Like no, no one talks about, hey, we're using AWS cloud services, and I think we yeah. so we really. I like, to, I like to say I, I like to say nobody ever says I sent an email using TCP/IP. Exactly. Like nobody. That's actually a better example. Because that's exactly of, what it is. Yeah. That's that's the facilitating right. technology, but nobody ever says that. Hey, mom, did you get the TCP/IP email I sent you last week? Like nobody says that. Exactly, exactly. So you can see myself. You can see me tie myself in knots to avoid using it because I just don't like focusing on the blockchain because I think it's irrelevant. Um, but yes, you're correct. So specifically on blockchain, what we're doing is we're, we're looking at a, a couple different things. So number one, we're looking at uh, zero knowledge proof identity. Got it. Okay. And that's actually done with our sister company, BlockPass. And why that's interesting on a number of different reasons is that one of the problems we have to solve for is actually that a lot of people in these countries don't have ID. There's no way to ID them. They don't have an ID card, et cetera. So we had to kind of create a way to do that. And we were like, 
we should give these people the newest form of identity that they own, they control, right? So if Facebook was to do it, actually Facebook would own their login identity. Right. To, right. And which, is, which would be terrible. They, right. And they do already do this in yeah. a lot of these countries, right? So that was like one kind of part of the quote unquote innovation stack where we're using uh, blockchain. The second part, as I mentioned, is this distributed ledger technology. So what that is really focused on is looking at, okay, we have hundreds, well, hopefully we'll have millions of microtransactions coming through our platform every single day. Right. And if you think about how transactions are done normally, if you can't batch small dollar amount transactions, the transaction fees actually kill you. So. What we're doing is we're looking at the distributed ledger technology to allow us to better batch some of those transactions and then reduce those sort of transaction fees and transaction costs. So that's kind of the other way. And then the final way is we're looking at how uh, individual and company ID can connect to do sort of metering and, and, and payments in a more efficient sort of autonomous loop so right. entirely kind of via smart contracts yep. and the the main thing to mention though is that there is no part of this blockchain stuff that we're doing that isn't real right now so we're not saying like we're gonna have we're building our own cryptocurrency we're not doing any of that we're just using the the actual blockchain ledger technology itself in ways that already exist and people are already using it to deploy our solution so this is important to make that clear is that we're not using some white paper blockchain hype technology that doesn't uh exist yet yeah so i want to ask you two more questions why batteries in other words why is that why do you think that's the best solution where i get the waypoints i understand why it's expensive to put stuff on top of people's houses and also the maintenance which i think a lot of people don't consider when they're trying to make these decisions, right? They're just like, throw solar on top of everybody's house, then it's easy, but it's not. Because like you said, if it breaks or it needs maintenance, that's a nightmare and it's expensive too. But why the sort of centralized place with the batteries and then the distributing the batteries to people? Like, do people know how to connect stuff to those batteries already? So to answer the second question, yes, they do. Because okay. they, they, they've seen it when they go to like charge their phone, for lighting, those types of things. It's very simple, that part of it. So to answer your first question, why batteries? This goes to our belief that this problem can be solved with existing technologies, but the key is creating a platform that enables, if there is some new technology, it doesn't really matter to us, right? So right now we're using lithium ion batteries that are 18650s. If in two years, you know, 2170 cells inside of batteries become popular. That's no problem for us. We're not investing millions and billions of dollars into creating new battery technology. What we're trying to create is a platform to distribute energy. Uh, my co-founder, Connor, is good at making up these terms. We actually don't even internally call them batteries. We just call them electron buckets because <laughs> we don't really care. Right. You don't care what, what it is. Form, right. What it is. Right. So. An example of, again, we're not trying to get involved in the hype. It doesn't matter to us, but people can test these things on our platform. We're talking to people who make small-scale hydrogen fuel cell batteries as well, right? And they can just have those batteries rented on our platform uh, as well. So that that's really why the battery approach. Secondly, um, 
it's I think it's more of a management consulting thing again. It's that the cost and, and the cost of batteries has pretty much decreased about eight to ten percent per year every single year. And I think Elon Musk is actually doing a great job making our business model look even better and better because the more Tesla reduces the cost of their batteries, the more everyone has to invest to catch up. So that curve is going to keep decreasing there. The second part is that the energy density is also increasing as the cost is decreasing. And so what that means is that as we move further in time, the applications that the batteries can power being the same size and weight that they are, it's going to also increase. And then the last part of kind of maybe not why batteries, but why this model is that also the efficiency of solar panels is increasing, not as much as, you know, uh, batteries are, but it's still increasing enough where we're using 300 watt hour, 350 watt hour, uh, sorry, 350 watt panels, and they're already in the 500s out there, right? right? So if you think about the amount of energy we can capture and then use to charge even more batteries or more energy dense batteries, it's just constantly increasing. And, and the most important part is the cost of all of that is decreasing more reliably. And then the last thing, I guess, to just to, to emphasize is that our focus is not on some moonshot technology. It's with the belief that we can solve this problem right now with the technology that exists already. So so that's kind of the, the main reasons for using batteries. Okay. I mean, that's a good answer, right? And the last thing I'll ask you, and then I'll let you go, is how do you guys make money? Yep. We make money in a variety of different ways. The first way is obviously renting batteries. So the cost of those battery rentals for the sizes is the 10,000 milliamp hour costs five cents per rental, 100 watt hour costs 10 cents, the 200 watt hour costs 20 cents, and the 2.4 kilowatt hour battery costs $2.40 to rent. And that's pretty much how we make most of our money. We also plan to make money by selling other things that electricity can enable. So in every waypoint, for example, we're doing a water pump and purification tool that's going to charge about, I think it's down to, it's between one and five cents per liter, depending on where it is. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but when you think about installing uh, something that can cost, you know, 50,000 bucks, any way that you can make margin helps. But what most people don't realize is in Nigeria, for example, some families are paying $50 a month for liter bottles of water, right? So, so not even enough water, not even as much water as we use in a day. In the US, people are paying that 50 US dollars for that in a month. So that that's, that's kind of another problem we can solve. The last sort of revenue generation model that we're looking at is based on our pilot in Benin, uh, with the government there, and that's using the charging station and swappable batteries to create an electric motorcycle taxi service. Okay. So they've kind of tasked us with developing that. And the larger the battery and the more energy it requires like per hour, the better for us. So that means if you think of that model and you have one bike, they'll probably rent two batteries per day. That means that you'll generate $5 per customer per day in that high energy usage model. So those are really the main ways that we're gonna generate revenue. And then we have some secondary uh, revenue streams because every single dollar matters because that's another job or another person we can hire. And yeah, we're looking at other things like 
one example that most people don't think about is even in these countries, they have, I guess you call them recruiters. So if I want to dig a ditch to put a pipe, I have to go and pay someone a couple thousand dollars to find people that are like qualified and trustworthy enough to come and dig the ditch. So we think that that can also be a source of revenue for us because we'll have people's information, payment history, those types of things where they are, and then we can use our platform to, to sort of reach out to them. But th those kinds of things are, are more in the future. And then lastly, more relevant is selling space within the Waypoint itself to deliver other solutions. So right now, one thing we're looking at, and we wouldn't obviously sell this, but we do it for free, is two of the three coronavirus vaccines require cold storage right. and multiple usage dosages. So we would look to partner with like health organizations to say, hey, we can charge, we, we sorry, charge, we can power refrigerators, um, keep the, the medicine cold, people can come to the station and, you know, administer the vaccine sort of that way. And and that's kind of how, how we're, we're thinking of it. So we look at the waypoints as the electron gas stations of the future, and we plan to replicate that business model as closely as possible. Got it. And I would give you one more one more idea, and that is if you have people coming there every day, and I believe that every platform should try to do this, you know, the other thing that these people need besides electricity is insurance in case anything goes wrong. And if you can provide micro insurance to them, then you it's just another form of revenue and potential profit for you, particularly in places where insurance penetration is simply not that high, but coverage against risk, particularly for electricity risk for businesses and motorcycles and stuff like that could also help you monetize. That is one thing we're looking at. Actually, our partner in Kenya with our UNDP project, they actually provide insurance. So they've already started to kind of figure out what would a Liquid Star insurance look like for their batteries, for electric bikes, Good. those types of things. But I mean, you, right on the money, I actually didn't really think of doing that outside of the, the hardware itself, but there's an opportunity to sort of help the business people have, have, have more secure, stable income. And I think the main thing that you mentioned in that, that is important, and I think an opportunity, is that in these countries, there is so much opportunity to innovate. There's so many problems to solve Absolutely. that are, are connected. And it is going to be a winner, I think, winner take all. So the more of the problems for people that you solve, the better. So it's really you need to think more like WeChat and Alibaba Correct. than the U.S. Western model, right? You can't Absolutely. just focus on one slice because there's so many problems. And that's really what's, I think, the most exciting thing about our project is we just get inbound requests from, you know, schools that are like, hey, can we put up a, a classroom next to one of the waypoints? Right. Health organizations, as I, as I mentioned, there's just so much stuff where it's like, if we are successful, like, I really feel we're going to make a huge impact on, 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 on a lot of people's lives in a variety of different categories. Yeah, I want to give you one other equivalency. If you think about the waypoints and the provision of electricity as sort of um, Microsoft operating system, everything else you do is like plugging Excel and um, PowerPoint and 
you know, Microsoft money and everything else into it that are also revenue streams, but they could not exist without that platform company. And that's kind of the way you have to look at it is if you can build the platform that everybody needs for electrical provision, then the other services that you can build around that can make this a massive opportunity. Totally. It's really finding what is that first entry point, right? And then expanding your service. The first maybe building block is probably a better way to look at it. Exactly. And then expanding on top of that. In a lot of places, that energy building block is, is taken care of already. So you have to be more creative. But if we have something that's so basic and essential that people need to buy it, that's going to give us a tremendous amount of, uh, of, of opportunity to then sell them other services that are a bit more scalable than the Waypoint. Yeah, okay. Look, I'm going to let you go. I think this was awesome. I want to thank you, Scott Salandi DeFore, co-founder of Liquid Star. Your parents must be super proud of you. I really want to thank you for doing this today. Thank you for having me.